Thanks for downloading this show from PC One. Before we get rolling, here's a word from one of the folks who helped bring you this podcast. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Did you know there were over one million bubbles in a glass of champagne? Did someone say brunch? Leave the egg hunting to the kids. We'll have even more fine hunting for your brilliant brunch, Riesling. Ham's sweet and salty richness pairs perfectly with sweeter wines with bold fruit. How about a juicy Pinot Noir? Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! Upside, the smart new way to buy business travel is Upside.com. You save money and get a free Amazon gift card every trip you buy. Use the code Forbes and you're guaranteed at least a $100 gift card your first time using Upside. Save big on travel and get a big gift card. Upside.com. Minimum purchase required. See site for complete details. This is the Forbes interview on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, I'll do deep dive interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs, and influencers. These are the faces you see on the cover of Forbes. And if they aren't in the cover, they easily could be. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Forbes interview. Really excited today. We have Captain Chesley Sullenberger, otherwise known as Captain Sully, um, who, among many things, is a pilot, a safety expert, uh, best-selling author. Um, I guess you're also a muse for Tom Hanks, which is a, quite, a, uh, quite a feat. <laughs> And uh, thank who you. Who knew? For, yes, who knew? That's why you probably became a, a pilot. Uh, thanks for joining. This is really exciting. Great to be with you, Stephen. And you know, we're doing this over the phone, but I wish you were here because we right now at Forbes are overlooking the Hudson, you know, by the Holland Tunnel, right where you have made your miracle landing. Um, so that would have been a nice little, nice little touch. It's amazing the number of people I've talked to personally who watched us that very day. I mean, it was incredible. So let's let's start right now, and you know, I want to get to that incredible day almost a decade ago. Um, but you know, kind of fill us in. Besides, uh, you know, inspiring you know major motion pictures. What have you been up to in the last few years? Um, you know, since that that crazy uh, that crazy day. Well, I've been able to uh, have amazing opportunities I would not have had in 100 normal lifetimes to meet world leaders, to travel the world, to talk to audiences from Australia to Switzerland and everywhere in between. Audiences as varied as nuclear power operators, financial risk managers, the military, uh, legal, uh, and many others in, in a variety of domains. And what I have, what I've found, is how similar our challenges are. How many similar issues we're all facing, no matter what business, no matter what domain that we're in. But that really shouldn't be surprising because what we're all trying to do ultimately is find ways to improve human performance in complicated systems that all involve inherent risk. And that's why so many of the things that in aviation we've worked on for four-plus decades and that I helped to pioneer in important ways have such great applicability and transferability to the other domains. Uh, it, and I think my team and I and all the first responders proved in the most dramatic way possible on January 15, 2009, that all the things that we worked on for, for decades really work in the real world, even in the most extreme crisis. Yeah, what's the link? What, how do you link together a uh, nuclear reactor operator and a financial risk officer? What, what are the, some of the similarities, kind of concrete, that link these sort of higher risk but very different uh, uh, jobs together? Well, we have to have, first of all, uh, what pilots call situational awareness, or SA. We have to be able to create and maintain accurately a mental model of our reality. 
We have to be good risk managers. We have to be mindful. We have to understand uh, our, our profession, our processes, so that we can begin to sensitize ourselves to risk uh, in, in, you know, in aggregate and singly. And we have to understand that bad outcomes are almost never the result of a single fault, mm-hmm. a single error, a single failure. Instead, they are the end result of a causal chain of events. And when we begin to sensitize ourselves to risk and be able to identify them proactively, we can break that chain and, and avoid a bad outcome. But ultimately, it, in every domain, in every organization, it always starts with the fundamentals, with having core values and having leadership committed to them. And then, you know, of course, leadership has the responsibility of creating an environment, a culture in which we all can do our best work. They provide the direction, they provide the resources, they provide the human development, uh, but it requires also the bottom-up engagement of frontline employees. So it's, it's that yin and yang, the, the leadership culture top-down from the bottom-up engagement that really does make the difference that sets apart the best from all the rest. So it sounds like being a pilot actually has very little to do with the actual flying and more with the leadership and, I guess, the, the assessment of the whole process. Well, the flying part of it certainly provides uh, one with the, the discipline, the diligence, the dedication you know, to, to be intellectually curious, to be a continuous lifelong learner, uh, you know, to be uh, someone who strives for excellence, to have a deep understanding that in, in every safety or quality critical domain, just good enough isn't. Hmm. What, let's go from the beginning here. You always loved flying. What what drew you to it? What made you want to become um, first a military pilot, then a commercial pilot? Oh, you know, after being a very young child, you know, probably four and a half or so, and briefly toying with the idea of being a, a police officer or a, a fireman, as we called firefighters in those days, by the time I was five, the die was cast. I knew I wanted to be a pilot. I was going to spend my life flying airplanes. And I was fortunate enough, actually, to be able to do it. You know, my grades were good enough. My eyesight was good enough. I had opportunities I was able to take advantage of at every step of the way, at every juncture. I uh, learned to fly at 16, got my private license at 17, commercial license at 18. By 20, I was a flight instructor in airplanes and gliders. Um, it's It's been something that's fueled my you know, life, my passion all along the way because I was curious and because I I, uh, I just would eat, breathe, drink, sleep flying. You know, I couldn't get enough of it. I, I wanted to be the most complete pilot, ultimately the most complete captain, most complete person I could be. So I, I think uh, there really, uh, it was a good fit for me. And I really learned early on that when one does not just go to work, but but instead follows a calling, mm-hmm. a noble calling, I think, in this case. Um, it, it has lots of benefits. And uh, when one can derive from one's passion, you know, satisfaction for having done a job well, um, then that can lead to providing one with purpose, and ultimately, if you're lucky, with meaning. Um, and when you can derive satisfaction, purpose, and meaning from what you do every day. It just doesn't get any better than that. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. 
Small businesses are at the heart of our communities. They're the places we could not live without. Whether you're looking to create a website for your business or a personal blog, you'll make a big impact when you build your site on WordPress.com. Even if you don't have experience building a website, WordPress.com can guide you through the process. They have hundreds of customized themes to get you started. You'll get built-in social sharing. And if you're on WordPress.com, you immediately have a leg up on everyone else when it comes to search engine optimization. Another bonus on WordPress.com, you get support 24-7 when you need it. So you can easily create high-quality content with no distractions and focus on running your business. Come see why more websites run on WordPress than on any other platform. Get started today with 15% off any new plan purchase. Go to wordpress.com slash Forbes to create your website and find the membership plan that's right for you. That's wordpress.com slash Forbes for 15% off your brand new website. Once again, that's wordpress.com slash Forbes. When was your first time in an airplane? Do you remember that? Your first ride? Vividly. Um, I was probably about 12 years old. Um, and this is back in the early 60s. Uh, my mom was uh, a, a member of the PTA, the Parent Teacher Association, mm-hmm. and she had a chance to go from a small town north of Dallas uh, to the Texas state capital, Austin, for a PTA meeting. And she let me go with her. And I dressed up in my Sunday best, as we did in those days, and we were on a Braniff Airways uh, Convair 440, a, a propeller engine airliner hmm. took off from Dallas Love Field going to the, the Austin Mueller Airport. Kind of a cloudy day, but as we took off and we rose above the ground, I looked out the window. Everything down there seemed tiny. The people seemed like ants. Cars looked like toys on a model railroad layout. Hmm. Uh, but I was just hooked. I was fascinated by it. Of course, I had already read every book and magazine I could. Uh, so uh, having that first experience you know, began to make real what I hoped to do. Even then, you were well-prepared, even before your first flight. Yeah, and you know, walking through the Dallas Love Field Airport, I happened to see what people of a certain age might remember uh, in the early 60s at the very beginning of the the Mercury space flight program, Mm -hmm. the original seven astronauts. Um, There was a man who was called the voice of uh, mission control, voice of Mercury control, Colonel John Shorty Powers, and I had seen a photograph of him. And sure enough, that day on the way back, uh, going through Dallas Love Field, I saw him. I recognized him. Didn't have a chance. Didn't have the nerve to go up and say hello to him. I should have shook his hand, but uh, I thought, "Wow, this is pretty cool. I get to go fly on an airplane and see somebody I'd only seen on TV before." It doesn't get any better than that. Yeah, no, no wonder you got hooked. And you mentioned too, you know, besides, spe- you know, you mentioned the, the the famous landing in the Hudson was forty years in the making. And you told me um, before we started that, you know, bes- besides being a pilot, you were a leader at your company. You really helped change the cockpit protocol the safety what was when you first started what was kind of the culture and the problems in the cockpit when you first started and when, what did you f- actively fix to make that situate that system better well of course it was me along with thousands of other pilots nationwide yes. in, in changing the cockpit culture from the bad old days 40 plus years ago when i started what were the bad old days scare us a little bit you know, we didn't know and understand what we do now we didn't understand the importance, not just of technical skills, but of what I call human skills, that some call soft as opposed to hard skills, but I, I don't like that definition. Mm-hmm. These aren't soft as opposed to hard skills, but they're human skills as opposed to technical skills. And so in the bad old days, uh, an airline captain, for example, might be arrogant, autocratic, um, 
didn't listen to others. He, he didn't see the name needs, need for a, a, a team-building approach. And the accident rate reflected that. Uh, you know, back in the early 60s, you know, there was an airline accident that was fatal every few weeks, something we wouldn't tolerate today, something yeah. that would be unimaginable today. Just by point of reference, in this country now, among the large uh, U.S. jet operators, the large airlines, the last passenger fatality in the U.S. and large jet airliner was in November 2001. Um, it's been over 15 years. Wow. An amazing run of we've made aviation ultra safe. That's not the, the same yet at the regionals, but even there, the last uh, regional crash that was fatal in this country was in February 2009, a month after our fatal flight. So, uh, eight years ago. And but, how much um, is that? How much has that been tetan- uh, with the airplanes and computers, or how much has that been? You know, uh, captain it's been it's been all bit together, but the human part of it was was substantial. And so, what we realized we needed to do, even as we were making the technology better, was we needed to arm our pilots, our flight attendants, and everybody else with these human skills to be able to to handle distractions, to trap errors to better communicate, to make better decisions and then communicate them, uh, essentially to to do what the best pilots and, and flight attendants already did. So what we did was we observed how the best captains led, we observed how the best crews, the best teams operated, and we, we came up with a course to, to teach everybody else how to do it as well. And so that's what we did. And um, I was a pioneer in that effort at my airline. In fact, you know you're a pioneer when you first begin to hear about this idea that from others and you talk about it and to be develop some, some um, nascent ideas. And then you approach the Pilots Union Safety Committee and you feel like it's a real chore. You have to work very hard to convince the Pilot Union Safety Committee that a new safety initiative is a good idea. Initially, there was some reactance because, uh, reluctance because they thought this, this might be um, you know, a threat to what we call captain's authority, to the, uh, the captain's autonomy, the ability to make an independent professional judgment. Uh, you know, free of outside influences. Mm-hmm. But in fact, we convinced them that they still have the same statutory responsibility, the same authority, but that we would make them more effective and they'd be able to, to build and lead a team more safely and more effectively if they use these techniques. Uh, and they did. And did so I taught the you? very first such course at my airline. And we began gradually to shift the, cor- the cockpit culture to one of where now when a captain meets a crew for the first time after the introductions are made, you begin to align goals, you have a quick conversation, you talk about a few safety and security specifics, and you create among the team members a shared sense of responsibility for the outcome. Mm-hmm. In other words, you take a team of, of people who are already experts, and you tell them how, you, you teach them how to, to make themselves an expert team. And those are different skills, but they're critically important. So by, by doing that, we were able to solve some of the problems that we had had in the, in the 70s in particular, some seminal accidents that were fatal that were caused by, by the lack of this kind of a team approach. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. I found the best way for you to buy business travel. It's Upside.com. And if you're not a business traveler, you know someone who is. You have to tell them about Upside. Here's why I love it. At Upside, you save money on travel and you get a free Amazon gift card worth hundreds of dollars every time. 
you get savings and a big gift card free. You might be wondering how they do it. Here's how. Upside bundles your flights and hotel together for one low price. Bundling saves a ton of money, especially on business travel. So they give you an Amazon gift card. Your company saves money and you still keep all your miles. And right now, when you use the code Forbes, you're guaranteed a free $100 Amazon gift card your first time. The code Forbes gets you a guaranteed $100 Amazon gift card. How can you not do it? Upside, save big on travel and get a big gift card every time. Upside.com. That's Upside.com. Minimum purchase required. See site for complete details. Like a day in the life of a, of a pilot at a, at a major airline that's flying, uh, let's say, New York to San Francisco. Um, what's like, take me through like their day in terms of, you know, all we do is we see the, we see the pilot, you know, walk on the plane and do some checks and they take off. Like what is kind of, what, what's the prep for that and what's kind of the, the, the cadence, I guess? Well, of course, before they can even become an airline pilot, they have to have a lot of knowledge, a lot of skill, a lot of training in, in the profession. They have to understand high-altitude meteorology, high-altitude physiology. They have to understand aerodynamics. They have to understand basic physics. They have to learn about the systems in the, every part of the airplane, electrical, hydraulic, fuel, and many others. You are assigned to a, a trip, often multiple days of flying, with another pilot, a first officer if you're a captain. Um, and you, at a large airline, where there may be 15,000 pilots and maybe 60,000 flight attendants, it means that we fly all the time with people we've never met before, yeah. because there's so many of them. And so that's a, yet another challenge. And so part of this you know, crew resource management, this leadership team building course, is to teach people how to do that. Uh, I mean, imagine that you were going to meet your team for the very first time, never knowing whether that day or the next day or the next week or never, you might suddenly face some ultimate challenge. How would you engage them? What would you say to them? How would you quickly take this collection of individuals and form them into an effective team so that if something awful happens on that very first takeoff, you can work together as if you'd been working together for years? So that's, those are the skills that we would teach. And so when when you get to the airplane and you meet the rest of the crew members, you have that crew briefing, that four-minute conversation. Uh, and then you begin doing your jobs, and you have divisions of duties. You have roles and responsibilities that, that each of us has learned well. Um, and then you begin to do your checks, and you divide up the, the labor. Often the first officer will do the exterior inspection of the airplane while the mm-hmm. captain checks the weather, checks the fuel load, checks the cockpit, uh, while the flight attendants check all the safety equipment in the cabin. And then when that's all complete, then they will begin to board the passengers. And as they board, they're observing them, their behavior, of course, in, in the post-9-11 days. They're looking for anything out of the ordinary that meets certain criteria. Uh, we make sure that people who sit in the exit row are at least 15 years old and can understand and speak English mm-hmm. and are willing to perform the duties of opening the overwing exits if there has to be an evacuation. So it's it's a... A team that's trained, that's schooled in the consistent application of best practices. And those best practices that we've learned, that this tacit institutional knowledge we've learned over decades, is really the result of learning from failures as well as successes. Every airline accident uh, is investigated by the National Transportation Safety Board in this country, and from that 
become formal recommendations for improving safety going forward. Mm-hmm. And so almost everything we know in aviation uh, we've gotten because someone somewhere died, often many people, to give us that, uh, that knowledge. And so we've learned important lessons at great costs, often literally bought with blood, that we dare not forget and have to relearn. So part of the the, uh, the challenge of being an, uh, an airline crew member in, in this ultra-safe age for commercial aviation is remembering that how, in spite of how easy we make it look, in spite of how routine and commonplace air travel has become, how ultra-safe it is, we can't forget what's really at stake. We can't become complacent. We have to remain vigilant because we never know, you know when we might face some ultimate challenge. And we, we can't allow our our performance to slip. We can't skip important steps or do or or omit certain important checks. And you mentioned that you know a lot of times these flights, it's a it's a professional crew that just met them each other for the first time, and they have hundreds hundreds of lives, uh, maybe even more at stake. And they do kind of a four-minute, um, I guess, get uh, ice-breaking session or team-building session. What tips can you share um, with me to kind of how that happens and how that could be applicable not just to an airline but maybe a freelance team or any in, something in business? Well, I, I must say that setting the stage for this question, uh, it's important to note that during much of my career, it was a tumultuous industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was hired by the airlines in early 1980, and the Airline Federal Deregulation Act had been passed in 1978. Uh, and it took a number of decades for all the effects of, of, the, reg, of the deregulation of fares and schedules to really be felt. Uh, intensely cost-competitive industry, at once labor uh, and capital-intensive, mm-hmm. very customer-service-sensitive, very safety-sensitive. And so you have a, a lot of economic pressure. And then, of course, with the terror attacks of 2001, with SARS, with you know, the um, downturns in the economy, with air, multiple airline bankruptcies, with loss of pensions. Almost every airline employee in the country has lost pensions. Uh, in, in the early 2000s, almost every airline employee took huge pay cuts. Mm-hmm. I took a 40% pay cut, my first officer for the Hudson flight. Jeff Skiles, because he lost his seat as a captain and was forced back into the right seat as first officer, and then took a pay cut on top of it, lost about 50% of his pay. And so during much of the 2000s when I was a captain, every week I'd come to work, part of my biggest challenge was to try to encourage and and motivate people to remain vigilant, to be dedicated uh, for safety reasons, in spite of how much we'd been, you know, disadvantaged and we felt like we were the working wounded so the morale uh, morale was low in the industry morale was was rock bottom and so that presented both a challenge and an opportunity the, the first thing i would do is to acknowledge talk about the elephant in the room to essentially start by saying i, I can't get you your pension back yeah but here's what i can and will do i would essentially say to them that um I can't fix all the problems in the world. They're too large. They're too complex. But by federal regulation, I am the pilot in command of this flight. And those are responsibilities I take seriously. So I can affect, and I'm responsible for affecting what happens on our flights for the next four days. And I'm determined that um, I will get you what you need as soon as you tell me you need it, whether it's catering or cleaning or maintenance or passenger service and the sooner you tell me what you need the the better i'll be able to get it for you 
I want to give our passengers the best experience, the safest flight we can, given what we have to work with. Um, and I would remind them that we had an obligation to do that, that we shouldn't worry only about what, what to do and how to do it. We should remember why we're doing what we do, why it matters that we do these important things, and for whom we're doing it, for you know, who we owe this to. We owe it to our passengers. We, their lives are literally in our hands. And so I, I would find a way to connect with them, to, to remind them what was important and why, and then to, to say, I'll, I'll, I'll make a compact with you that I will take as good of care of you as I possibly can. I, that's my job as a captain. I'll make sure, for example, that when we get to Pittsburgh late tonight and we're scheduled for a minimum layover, that under the, the rules that we were operating then, it's somewhat better now. The airline was allowed to schedule us for a nine-hour, 15-minute break between the time we arrived at the gate mm-hmm. the, the night before until we pushed back from the gate in the morning. And because they had chosen the cheapest hotel that was 45 minutes away, after the passengers had deplaned, which takes about 20 minutes, and we collected our gear and walked 10 or 15 minutes to the curb, we might have a long ride in the hotel van. And bottom line, we might get five and a half hours of sleep if we're lucky. Oh, okay. And so I'm going to call the hotel and have them send the van as soon as we get to the gate so we're not waiting out in the 20-degree cold for them to come get us. I'll take care of you the best I can. I'll make this trip as good as it can be. And in return, I want you to be my eyes and ears for me. Mm-hmm. I want you to tell me what's happening with the airplane. If it's something I cannot directly observe because I'm locked in the cockpit now, tell me if you see something that you think is a concern. It's not It's not just your right to speak up, it's your responsibility to speak up. And so that's how it helped to build the team. Well, and that, on that fateful day in the Hudson, um, was this, a, had you worked with your crew before beforehand, or was this one of your early flights with that complete team? This happened on a Thursday afternoon near the end of our four days of flying. Um, in fact, it was going to be the last leg, last flight of our four-day trip, and we met for the first time on, on Monday afternoon three days before. I had never met Jeff before. Um, never seen him before. Hmm. And yet, had you been allowed to sit in the observer seat in our cockpit on that flight to the river, not that you would really have wanted to be there with us, I grant you, <laughs> and, and watch us work, you'd have thought that we'd been working together like that for years because we had been trained to such a high professional standard, because we knew our roles and responsibilities so well, because we used to such great effect this concise, well-defined aviation vocabulary where a single word can be rich with meaning. A word like brace, for example. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. The Forbes interview is brought to you by WordPress.com. WordPress powers 27% of all websites, including Forbes blog posts. Get 15% off your new website today at WordPress.com slash Forbes. That's WordPress.com slash Forbes. Put us in the cockpit right now. Uh, I'm sure you've done this a thousand times, but you know, on that day, on, on the, the Hudson Landing, what was going through your head then was it you got you and jeff was it automatic was it kind of like in a flow state or was it almost were you thinking each procedure out it was a combination of that it it was um a sudden shock you got let me set the stage for this question as well (laughs) it it had been 29 years since i've been a fighter pilot in the air force and where I'd flown airplanes, you know, near the edge of the flight envelope, yeah. extreme conditions. Uh, it had been, you know, a long time since I had flown airplanes that 
had mechanical failures more regularly. Over the years, 29 years as an airline pilot, you know, 21 as a captain, you know, the advantages had been great, and, and travel had become more and more routine. It got more and more rare to be significantly challenged in any way in an airplane. Uh, in um, fact, up, in, up until then, what was your biggest challenge up until that day? Uh, flying jet fighters in the Air Force in yeah. the 70s. Um, you know, a couple of occasions where just through my own miscalculation, I got too close to the ground a couple of times, for example. Yeah. During the Cold War, when we were flying at 100 feet above the ground over the rural Nevada desert in war games, <laughs> you know, going up to 600 knots where you're covering a nautical mile every six seconds right. in formation. So at the airline world, you worked very hard to make everything routine and, and, and easy, predictably reliable. You, you work hard to anticipate and to plan to have alternatives for every course of action. You work hard never to be surprised by anything at the airline. And so just 100 seconds after takeoff on this particular flight, uh, we were suddenly confronted with an ultimate challenge, one we'd never anticipated, one we could never have trained for, because in our flight simulators, you can't practice water landings. The, the data don't exist. They aren't programmed for it. So hmm. believe it or not, the only training in our in our, tra- in our airline training that we'd ever gotten for a water landing was a theoretical classroom discussion. And so the, the, the startle factor was huge. Hmm. And so my body's reaction was huge also. I can remember being aware of that in the first few seconds. I could feel my my pulse shoot up, my blood pressure spike. I sensed my perceptual field narrow because of it and with tunnel vision. It was marginally debilitating. It absolutely interfered with our ability to, to process and to perform. But I had uh, enough of a creative reserve. I have, my, my capabilities were strong enough mentally and technically after so many years of, of uh, trying to be better and better, trying to make every flight better than the previous one, that I had enough reserve yet that I could still behave and perform pretty well even in this sudden crisis. Within two seconds, I'd taken from memory the first two remedial actions I knew would help us the most that we would eventually get to on this three-page checklist that we got mm-hmm. through the first page of a minute later, three, you know, a third of the way through the remaining flight time. Um, so it was a matter of suddenly confronting something that we never envisioned, never trained for, having to force calm on ourselves, then impose order on what might have been chaos by imposing a paradigm that we had learned about essentially how to maintain control, set priorities, uh, even in a situation we were never specifically trained for. And then by having the discipline to manage the workload to load shit because I knew there wasn't time to do everything we really needed to do. Mm-hmm. Instead, I had to focus on, on only doing the very most important things, the things that would help us the most, but doing them very, very well, and then having the discipline to ignore everything I didn't have time to do as being only potential distractions and potential de- detriments to our performance if I tried to do too much. Because I knew that multitasking was a myth. <laughs> I knew that when we think we're multitasking, what we're doing, in fact, is just switching rapidly between tasks, not doing any of them well. I'd seen the data on that, and I knew how important it was to 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 mentally focus, to uh, narrow the focus down to solving the most immediate problems one at a time as quickly as possible and not trying to do too much, and being willing to sacrifice the airplane to save lives mm-hmm. and not worrying about being second-guessed, as I knew I would be, by investigators and by everybody else in aviation, 
they'd be scrutinizing for years everything I did and everything I said. But I didn't let that knowledge dissuade me from having to do what I had to do. In fact, I'd been a pilot union safety uh, investigator before and participated in an NTSB investigation of another accident a long time ago. So I knew how the process worked, how important, how valuable it is, but that still didn't make it any easier to go through it. I'd say that was all running through your head um, in that short amount of time, huh? I didn't specifically think about all those things. There wasn't time for that. Yeah. I mean, we've been talking for about five minutes now about what happened in the first five seconds. <laughs> but um, all those things were in the back of my mind and essentially accessible to help me frame my decision-making in sort of an intuitive way. So it wasn't at all automatic. We didn't just blast through procedures that we had memorized um, we had to take what we did know and quickly adapt it and, and apply it in a new way to fit this novel situation. But it certainly helped to have such a vast uh, repository of experience. In in my first interview ever, when I spoke to Katie Cork in 60 Minutes a few weeks after the flight, I, I described that process in this way. I said, one way of looking at this situation and how I handled it was that for 40 years I'd been making small, regular deposits in this bank of education, training, and experience. And on January 15, 2009, the balance was sufficient that I could make a sudden large withdrawal. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on everything you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals to help you save during our spring Black Friday sale, like Bonnie Vegetable and Herb Plants, four for $10. And for a clean-looking landscape, pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch for just $10. Whatever's on your spring to-do list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417, not valid on Alaska or Hawaii. Bonnie offer valid on 19-ounce pots. See store for details, U.S. only. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This week on All of the Above with Norman Lear, Veep star Julia Louis-Dreyfus sits down with Norman and Paul. Well, you know, there wasn't a script when I was first talking to HBO about it. There wasn't a concept. And my my agent had said to me, listen, they're developing this thing at HBO about an unhappy vice president, an unhappy female vice president. And I thought to myself, well, I got to get in on this action because Mm -hmm. it's gold and it's so amazing that nobody's done it before. Listen today on the Podcast One app or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or on PodcastOne.com. This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. If you think that your payment system exists solely for the purpose of transferring money from a customer's wallet to yours, think again. Braintree. Rethink payments. Learn more at braintreepayments.com slash Forbes. Had there been ever like any other big commercial water landings that had has the people survived? Yes. Uh, there have been several famous ones, um, starting in the 50s with Pan Am propeller airliners between San Francisco and Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been a few in Europe and parts of Russia over the years, but not well known. Um, but this, I think, because it happened um, in New York, because it happened in the modern digital media age, uh, it was noticed and it became you know, a, a, a very remarkable event that people around the world knew the story of. Oh, it was incredible, and I think, um, you know, and the world at that time needed it. I mean, I, I look back, and I get emotional thinking about it. I was in New York then, and I feel, like you said, it was a freezing January day, and I think the city and the country and the world were still in the throes of the financial crisis, and I think we needed a, a win, and uh, you guys definitely delivered a, a win that day. 
I think you're right. I think that's why this story still has this enduring power to touch and inspire people. It's because it happened during the financial meltdown in 0809. It seemed as though everything was going wrong and no one could do anything right. I think some people had begun to doubt human nature, wondering if it was really mostly about self-interest and greed. And then this group of strangers rose to the occasion that day, passengers, crew, rescuers, first responders, and made it their mission to see that every life was saved. And I think it, it gave us all hope and a renewed faith in humanity when we much, much needed it. And you're speaking of you, you were, this was uh, the whole event was 40 years in the making and making small deposits um, to get ready for that day. But what made you were you ready for that media onslaught and becoming a a global no. figure? No, not at all. I, I mean, but in in my own way, without I, I, again, my life had been a preparation for that challenge of the flight, not knowing when or if and if it would happen or what it would be, but. Um, my life had also been a preparation for becoming very suddenly a public figure, mm-hmm. which was traumatic in its own right, and it required us to quickly you know, grow and, and stretch ourselves, reinvent ourselves, to become better at, at skills we had and develop entirely new ones that we hadn't had before. But, like I said, my my natural intellectual curiosity, my love of reading, my love of learning, um, had fueled my passion throughout my flight. Um, I, I was a lifelong learner. And so reading a lot and being literate and um, having grown up with a first-grade teacher for a mom and a professional for a dad um, put me in an environment in mm-hmm. which education was valued, ideas were important, and striving for excellence was expected of me. And so those were all huge advantages. So I had a lot of raw material on which to draw, uh, you know, to do interviews, to, to give talks, um, to write books about, because I, I, I cared about what I thought and what I believed and what I knew and what I didn't and what worked and what didn't. And so I'd done a lot of the hard work, at least intellectually, to, to come up with you know, who I am and, and uh, what I believe before that, or I, I couldn't have done what I've done since. What surprised you the most about this newfound publicity? Or being, you know, kind of a, a known person and someone that the media and everyone else kind of sought off, sought after. Well, the, the biggest surprise, of course, at first was just the the intensity of it. It was so completely overwhelming and so sudden. I mean, literally, as soon as my name was discovered by the press, you know, there were satellite trucks in front of our house uh, for ten days. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were fifty thousand requests in the first few months. We had received communications, ultimately, after a few months, from every continent on the planet, including a scientist sending us an email from Antarctica. <laughs> so you got um, them all covered. It's, uh, I can't tell you how overwhelming um, that is, how intense it was. But I guess, ultimately, the other surprise is um, it's amazing what people can learn to do. Yeah. Uh, um, and it's a lot of fun being particularly good at something that's difficult to do well. And, and that's how I describe my flying career. And now that's how I describe my speaking career. Because it, it wasn't my natural temperament. It, it, I wasn't naturally gifted in that way. I had a good vocabulary, but I'd never done much public speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I approached it 
this new career as a speaker with the same discipline and diligence I did learning my flying career. And so I, I worked very hard. I knew intuitively what I should be able needed to be able to do. And then I solicited, listened to, and acted on brutally honest feedback, uh, just as we debrief our flights, uh, especially in the military, to learn from them and hold each other accountable. Um, and so I held myself accountable, and I got better. And then it becomes a virtuous circle. And then the the better your 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 skill level is, the the better are you are at it. Um, the less nervous you are, mm-hmm. and the less nervous you are, the the quicker you can improve. And then finally, it becomes fun. And then you're more aware of the audience's reactions as you talk to them, and you can do more of what works and less of what doesn't, and and make it more conversational and um, and more give and take, and and then. Um, then it becomes a lot of fun. And besides kind of drilling and practicing, how else did you improve um, kind of your speaking and stage presence? Did you read a lot? Did you practice? Did you have coaches to kind of help you go through this? No, I didn't use a coach. I, um, Like I said, I had a pretty good intuitive grasp of what I should be able to do. But I, what I did do early on is, is watch myself on video, which which even for professionals is hard to do. I mean, we're all our worst critics. Yeah, but you, you learn to have a pleasant demeanor to control uh, everything about your behavior so that it's it uh, is a positive contribution to the to the presentation did life kind of calm down a little bit and get back to normal after the flight and then um get kind of crazy again when uh the clint eastwood uh, tom hanks uh, sully movie came out yes full marks to you for noticing uh, absolutely that it happened enough time had passed this story had receded somewhat from the public consciousness and of course having a major motion picture in IMAX, uh, writ large in the big screen, directed by Clint Eastwood, starring Tom Hanks, sort of kind of you know, resets the clock and gets it going again. Um, what was that like? Was that, I mean, few, few, people, few living people have major biopics made up of them, and few of them are positive. And, you know, they could have called this anything. They could have called this Miracle on the Hudson or, you know, Water Crash, but they called it Sully. They called it, you know, Your Name, which is even more personal. Like, what was this whole experience like? Well, I was actually surprised that that ended up being the title. And early on when this project uh, was greenlit, I actually questioned them about that. I said, uh, you know, I, I'm surprised that this is the title. And But their answer made a lot of sense to me. They said, well, almost every other title we could think of would require some kind of explanation. Uh-huh. Um, and this didn't. And so it, it became an eponymous film. Um, but it was surreal. You know, I, I think... Uh, handling the the sudden, intense, worldwide acclaim, the notoriety that happened so quickly after the flight, and handling this film project experience was easier for my wife and me because, well, for two reasons. First, we were mature adults when this happened to us and not, you know, very young. Yes. So we had a lot more life experience to help us put this in perspective. And the, sec- and the second thing, maybe even the more important thing, is that we were never starstruck. We understood that people who are famous, who are actors or entertainers, essentially are just doing their jobs. They just have different jobs than yeah. we do, and they have jobs that require them to be famous. Um, so we didn't read too much into it. Uh, we, we didn't believe too much of what we read or heard, either good or bad. 
um, and we kind of we tried very hard to stay true to the core of who we are and live our lives essentially the same way. You know, but we did have to very quickly learn to live in some ways a very new version of our lives very quickly as public figures. It, it did require us to, to live differently. But in terms of the film, you know, at first it didn't seem real. I mean, we, we of course, intellectually knew what it was going to entail, but emotionally mm-hmm. it didn't seem real until Clint came to the house for the first time and uh, a few weeks after the project had begun to get the measure of us to see us in our natural environment before mm-hmm. he made any casting choices. Um, and he's not doing here. He's a very quiet, thoughtful guy, with, but with a clear vision of how to tell a story. And yeah. so we talked for about three hours at lunch. Um, I told him some stories, and he seemed pleased by the stories and my ability to tell them. And uh, he told me he had his own story, and in, in a way he was uniquely qualified to tell ours because in the early 1950s during the Korean War, he was an enlisted man in the U.S. Army mm-hmm. uh, and awaiting his assignment probably ultimately to go to Korea. And um, he had gone up to Seattle to see his parents from uh, Fort Ord near Monterey, California, where he was based. And on the way back, hitching a ride on a Navy airplane, they had to, to ditch in the Pacific a few miles off the coast of San Francisco near Point Reyes. And as it was getting dark, they had to, he and the pilot had to swim ashore through what yeah, they later learned was shark-infested waters. They both survived, ultimately. Fortunately, he was a, a lifeguard and swim instructor, <laughs> so he was prepared in his own way for that challenge. Um, but uh, yeah, then a few months later, when Tom Hanks was cast, he came to the house, and we spent some time going over the script and talking about things. And we didn't at all talk about how he would craft his role. That's his expertise. Mm-hmm. But he did, like Clint, tried to reassure us. You know, Clint just said that I know it's your life story, and but we'll take care of you. Don't worry. Well, we, you know, of course we weren't worried, but we were very concerned or very interested at every juncture that that they would tell it, you know, truthfully and in a way that was respectful for the story, and they did. But Tom said that he knew that he had a special responsibility because he, before he had played real people still living, like mm-hmm. Captain James Level of Apollo 13, like Rich Phillips and others, and that lots um, of captains. Yeah, he's done lots of captains, um, <laughs> and that uh, he was going to do the best he could, that he realized for some period while the film was very popular that he and I would be conflated in the public's mind, but that after the film had run its course, I was going to have to go back to living my, the rest of my life, mm-hmm. and he didn't want to screw it up for me. <laughs> and so he was he felt a special obligation, and he did. He uh, did a good job. How do you uh, rate his mustache in the movie? Well, it's good. It's interesting. Um, I had shaved mine off a few years uh, ago, and apparently the the movie people, even though they had a dossier built on all of us, uh, didn't realize that. And so when we uh, attended one day of filming in Charlotte at the museum where our airplane is that we flew into the river that day on display to the public, intact, I'm glad. (laughs) I showed up without a mustache, and they were going to film a a recreation of a passenger crew reunion that happened a few years before. And so they were, the the makeup people were suddenly in a panic, you know, we didn't know he shaved his mustache off, what are we (laughs) going to do? Well, it turned out that they had made and and perfected a very expensive uh, fake mustache for Tom Hanks to wear. But in fact, they were happy with the way his own mustache looked and were able to make it look. 
so he never wore it, but they had it on hand, so they had me wear this mustache they had intended for Tom to wear to look like me, for me to wear to look like I I looked in 2010. Always prepared. So they were ready, and we did that, and it all worked worked out. But uh, it was quite a process. It was fascinating to see how movies are made, and and the hundreds of people in Clint's Army who who make the movie magic happen. Um, At one, uh, we were only in the set a couple of days. Um, One day was in Charlotte, Mm -hmm. and then one day was in uh, Burbank on the back lot at Universal, where there's an artificial lake, one of the places they had filmed one of the Jaws sequels. And they went to such great effort and expense to make this movie look real. They went to the desert in Arizona where the airline had stored several retired airliners, Mm -hmm. and they got two complete Airbus A320s that had been stored in the desert that U.S. Airways had flown, and trucked them, took planes off, trucked them to Burbank. They put one back together in this artificial tank to use for some of the rescue scenes, and they, they cut the forward fuselage off the cockpit section of the other one to put it on a soundstage uh, in the studio to film the interior cockpit scenes. And we, we got a chance to watch one day of filming at the, at the lake. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. Having an up-to-date payment system is one of those things like a rattle in your engine that you might let slide to the bottom of the to-do list. Everything's working now, so you'll get to it when you get to it, but that's not necessarily a practical strategy. Leave it too long, and you could be stranded on the side of the highway. And when we're talking about getting paid, you don't want to get stranded. It might not be a bad time to check in with Braintree and keep your business humming. Braintree. Rethink payments. Find out more at braintreepayments.com slash Forbes. That must have been so surreal. I mean, when you watch these, like, when you watch these movies, do you, I mean, and you, even if you watch Tom Hanks, do you feel like you're watching like yourself or an impersonation of yourself or does he just kind of have the, es- did he capture kind of the essence of the situation and that's what you, you, you it seems like to uh, you? Yes. Um, it, both. It, it was surreal. That, that's the, we use that word a lot. We we use surreal as a yeah. family to describe the, the aftermath of the flight, uh, the sudden notoriety, and we also use that word to describe the first time we saw the film before its release, when it had just been completed mm-hmm. uh, in Burbank. We watched it in private screening. It, it was surreal. Um, it it was almost an out of body experience watching someone on screen say, in many cases verbatim words that I had said to someone or we had said to each other. Um, it took some getting used to it. it. When the film was finished, after we watched it for the first time, we were very quiet. There were just the four of us in the in this theater. Uh, and it took us a while. We actually flew home and, and it was at dinner that night where my younger daughter, who's always the one who does this, says, so are we going to talk about what just happened or what? <laughs> uh, and then we had the most uh, in, interesting, sometimes funny, but wide-ranging discussion about all the ways that made us feel. But it took some time for us to think about how it made us feel and yeah. put it into words. That's heavy stuff. But then the second time we watched it, um, it was more of a typical movie-going experience. And then uh, we watched it at the uh, premiere in New York, and that was the first time we'd seen it with an audience. And hearing and seeing the audience reaction to it also was very illuminating. And, and each time we would see it, we would see things that we had missed the first time. And yeah, it was, it was surreal. I remember in the beginning of the film, there's kind of a theme going through. They had these kind of almost uh, night, a nightmare sequence of, of your character kind of having dreams about accidents and crashing. Was that a kind of a device, or did you is that something that you experienced as a, as a pilot? 
a bit of both. Jeff and I, and, and I'm sure the flight attendants all had nightmares in the first few nights. It was mm-hmm. such a, a traumatic experience. We were ex- experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, we couldn't sleep more than 30 or 45 minutes at a time for, for the first few nights. We couldn't shut our brains off. The constant second-guessing and what-ifing. And I would try to, in those first few days, I'd try to read uh, an, an article. I'd, I'd end up rereading the same sentence five times, mm-hmm. never fully com- comprehending it, and finally giving up. Um, at, at night, you know, when you're alone with your thoughts and the, you know, the, and the demons come, you know, you just you can't shut it off, and it's disturbing. But I never had, I don't remember what my dreams were about, but I'm sure that they weren't about a 9-11 style you know, crashing and high rise, this sort of a thing. I, I couldn't tell you what they were, but they were, I'm sure, disturbing and and about the possibilities of that we faced that day, uh, or my responsibility and my worry that I mm-hmm. completed them. You know, I, I, I accounted for everybody. Had someone somehow fallen in the river and drowned, you know, that sort of a thing. Um, those were my concerns. Did the trauma eventually? How did that trauma subside? With time, you know, with processing it, thinking about it, talking about it, writing about it. Um, you know, people ultimately can be resilient, but it uh, it took some time. You know, my re- I, I I run, I go to the gym. Mm-hmm. My resting pulse is normally you know in the 50s or 60s, uh, and after this event, uh, it was 100 24 hours a day. Wow. Uh, my rest my resting blood pressure is normally you know one away over 68. For 10 weeks, it was 160 over 100, even taking blood pressure medication. Um, so, but um, you know, you you gradually get better. You gradually sleep a little bit more. Uh, but it, it probably took me two or three months to get my sleep cycle back to where I could sleep through the night again. Um, and but and I, I wanted to go back to flying. It was important that I did, but I couldn't, of course, until all those issues had been resolved, and uh, until I'd been you know gone back in the flight simulator and and gotten recurrent and recertified. And then once I did, then I made it a point to fly again with our first officer from the Hudson flight, Jeff Skiles. And then the next year, when a year after the flight, after 30 years at the airline, I I took my retirement flight and I retired. I made it a point to fly again with Jeff on my last flight. So what was that first, what was your uh, first flight back in the saddle like? You know, people often ask me that, assuming that it was difficult. It wasn't at all. Um, First of all, it's something I love. It's a lifelong passion. And I'd done it my whole life, uh, so it was like going home. It was like putting on a favorite pair of jeans. But I've got to say, though, that the very first flight I had when I went back to work and I saw some birds go by near us, and it, 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 was, it definitely got my attention you yeah. know, I, until I sort of came, became a little bit more desensitized to, to an occasional bird presence. Did the, uh, the, did the passengers on the flight knew who was flying the plane? Yeah, they they would see me and they would find out. In fact, that became sort of a disrupting issue for a while. That's part of why I retired. I um, the airline gave me a flexible schedule for a while to get things done in that immediate aftermath when mm-hmm. I came back to work. Um, and I would always announce myself on the PA. And I remember one of the first flights I had when I said, "Ladies and gentlemen, this is Captain Sullenberger," and then you'd hear. I learned to wait a few seconds, give it a few beats before I said anything else where it would be obscured by you know, the noise from the cabin. That must have been fun. Well, yeah, it was just different. You know, it was it was something I wasn't used to. But, yeah, it's, um, I guess I would 
describe the entire process this way, that um, the, the intensity of being a world-recognized public figure is so, in- so extreme. Thank goodness it was for something good. Yes. If it were for doing something bad, if my name were Madoff, for example, I could not imagine how awful that would be because just having it for a good thing where people want to say hi to you is overwhelming at times. If it were something bad, it would be unbearable. Real quick, what, um, I know you're doing self-driving car stuff. What, what's, kind of your, what's your prediction for, the, for that in the future? Oh, gosh, predictions are always tough. Uh, I, I will say that um, it, the industry seems to be in a race. They seem to be determined to have autonomous vehicles on the road uh, everywhere as much as possible, as quickly as possible. And I tell them the same thing I told an audience at the Kennedy Space Center at Cape Canaveral um, when they were talking about developing the next space vehicles. It's much more important to get it right than it is to get it fast. Mm -hmm. My concern is that as vehicles become more autonomous, we're going to see some of the unintended consequences happen with vehicles that we've seen happen with increasing automation use in, in, in airplanes. That is, that the more technology people depend upon, the less engaged they are with the process of being an operator of the vehicle, and the less likely they are to be able to quickly and effectively intervene if they must. So if we're going to really have autonomous vehicles, then they need to be so good that human intervention is never necessary, and that's going to be an extraordinarily high bar. I'm not sure it's one that's reachable in the near term. So you think really. that with all these, like, all, all the autonomous driving, or at least the features, like automatic braking and yeah. stuff, it's kind of like a, how the seatbelts, people started driving faster when they were wearing seatbelts yeah, so, in, the, in the beginning. Uh, I, I'm, I'm in favor of the driver-assisted technology. I'm in favor of lane departure warnings. I'm in favor of automatic braking. I'm in favor of people driving their cars, still be, you know, being well-trained to do it, yeah. being engaged and alert, not distracted and not impaired and having technology help you. And if you're a good driver, the technology would never be needed. But if you're not, or if, you, if you're a good driver and you're momentarily distracted or something happens, something surprises you, then the technology may help save you. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is that if people in autonomous vehicles that still require some engagement feel like the technology is good enough that they don't have to pay attention, that they can be putting their makeup on or reading a newspaper or eating or asleep, while their vehicle drives in there and, and, and something happens and they suddenly have to intervene, they're probably not going to be able to. Yeah. So we need, we need to, I, I think there's a great uh, benefit to having driver assistance behavior that makes up for some of the inadequacies of driver behavior. Uh, but if people feel like they're invulnerable and no matter what they do, no matter how careless they are, no matter how uninvolved they are, no matter how impaired they are, uh, that the technology will save them. It might not. So I think it's this transition zone mm-hmm. where on the way to some ultimate technology that would need intervention that we get in a lot of trouble. Yeah, it's all your neighbors out there in San Francisco who are reading the paper and their Teslas as they go down, uh, down the highway. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. It's just craziness. <laughs> um, and, and we're going to see more of that, I'm afraid. Uh, because the, these companies are rushing to get their technology on the road without fully understanding the consequences. I think also, the in order to have a, uh, these vehicles learn 
just as drivers do from experiences. We need to have big data sets. So basically, we still need to keep everybody and their vehicle cyber safe, but there needs to be a way for each vehicle to learn from the experiences of every vehicle. And then we'll have a big enough data set to quickly teach your vehicle about vehicles in Sweden or New York or somewhere else and, and not have to have your own vehicle learn from its own mistakes because that's going to take too long and be too risky. But I, the other concern is I think these companies are using the public as unwitting, unwilling guinea pigs when they put these vehicles on the road. Yeah, And that's, that's a, a legal and moral issue ultimately that they seem not to be addressing. Yeah, like you said before, I think uh, a lot of these things we got smart about with airplanes were paid for in blood, which is very poignant and you know, hopefully... You know, these companies aren't doing that with uh, with uh, with us out in the road. Just for the audience, could you give me a, a Captain Sullenberger announcement right now as if we're uh, taking off? Well, I'll, I'll do you one better. Um, since um, I am a safety advocate, and especially now that I'm using my bully pulpit to have a greater voice about things I've cared about my whole life, including the safety of the traveling public by every means of transport, including our personal automobiles, let me, let me make a, a new announcement for you. Sounds good. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. Uh, when you travel on an airplane, you're in good hands, and you are required to have your personal electronic devices in such a way that they will not affect the airplane during certain phases of flight. Let me remind you that when you drive your car to or from the airport, or anywhere else for that matter, If you choose to use your personal electronic devices while you're the driver, you're putting your own amusement, your own curiosity, your own personal needs ahead of the welfare of those all around you. That's a stupid and selfish thing to do. You know, we have a lot of threats in our lives, whether it's a a concern about terrorism or falling in the bathtub. But if you really understand relative risks, if you really understand safety, you'll know that for each of us, no matter what our lives are like, the one most important choice we could make that would do the most good, that would save the most lives, is having the discipline, having the integrity to never use your phone while you're driving. You owe it to those around you. I think that's a perfect place to end it. Um, Captain Sully, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Great to be with you. That's it for this episode of the Forbes interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. If you'd like to reach us, email us at interview at podcastone.com. Thanks for listening. Here's an interesting fact for you. There are nearly 1 million new books published in the U.S. alone every year. 1 million. So if you like to read, how do you choose what you're going to read? Well, that's where Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews comes in. You see, Kirkus has been one of the top book review publications for over 80 years. They do a deep dive on thousands of titles every year, including interviewing best-selling authors and telling you what might be the hot new release before everyone else knows. So figure out what your next read is going to be. Download Fully Booked right now on the Podcast One app at Apple Podcasts or at PodcastOne.com. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on everything you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals to help you save during our spring Black Friday sale, like Bonnie Vegetable and Herb Plants, four for $10. And for a clean-looking landscape, pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch for just $10. Whatever's on your spring to-do list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. 
Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417, not valid on Alaska or Hawaii. Bonnie offer valid on 19-ounce pots. See store for details, U.S. only. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.